0: Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on FEPS-Europe.eu. Good afternoon, everyone. It's lovely to welcome you back to our FEPS Talk episode. My name is Anja Skrzypek. I'm Director for Research and Training at FEPS. And it's my pleasure and privilege to welcome with us Professor Simon Higgs, who is a British uh, political scientist and vice president of the London School of Economics and Political Sciences. And to Brussels public particularly, he is known for his uh, very, very inspiring predictions ahead of each and every European elections. Professor Hicks, really great to have you with us.
1: Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here.
0: In fact, uh, we wanted to reconnect uh, with you uh, because uh, we've been uh, very uh, much shaken by findings of your recent paper, The Rise and Fall of Social Democracy, 1918-2017, where you look at 100 years of our movement, you analyze 31 countries, you uh, looked at almost 600 elections, so that in itself is an incredibly impressive data, and you argue that the history of social democracy should be seen in diverse periods. By that, which period are we exactly in, according to your opinion? <laughs>
1: Well what we the the real aim we were trying to do in the study was to try and uh, piece together what are the the factors the correlates of the performance of social democratic parties in democratic elections in Europe um to see if there was anything general we could say that was robust across time and across country Um, And we want that the story we tell is a particular type of story based on a a social coalition behind the social democratic parties. I mean, there's lots of other ways you can think about the story you might tell, which would be generally looking at what factors in terms of the economy and the performance of the economy or different changes in society and so on. But we were particularly interested in trying to focus on the type of social coalition. But when we started to look at this, we realized that social democratic parties themselves uh, actually change and evolve over time. And so what we we thought we'd try and do was was identify different types or or different waves of social democracy. So the first wave of social democracy, which was in the period between 1918 and the Second World War, was when social democratic parties broke away from communism and and chose a parliamentary road to socialism. And and in that period, the the aim of these parties was to win an electoral majority and to use that electoral majority to then introduce a socialist society. Um, And They were very distinct in what they were trying to do. We then identify a second period which starts for some countries towards the end of that period of the Second World War, up to the Second World War, but for most countries is after the Second World War, in the period between the 1940s and the 1990s even, where what happens then is the social democratic parties start to to say we well, this is about managing capitalism accepting capitalism but then saying what they want to do is reform capitalism ex- expand public spending expand the welfare state um, and this was an acceptance that the social democratic parties wouldn't naturally just win a majority. They thought in the period up to the second world war that with industrial society, there would be a plurality of, of people in society would be industrial workers. Those industrial workers would naturally vote for the social Democrats. Social democratic parties would naturally then win an electoral majority. That didn't actually happen. And that didn't happen because a lot of workers did not necessarily vote for socialists. They voted for Christian Democrats, conservatives, lots of other types of parties. And so To be able to win an electoral majority, socialists had to reach out and broaden their coalition. And so in that second wave, which is really, we call a catch-all wave of social democratic parties, these these parties then tried to reach out beyond that industrial base to then add to that coalition the public sector workers. That started to unravel, and we can perhaps talk about why that might be. But then we identify a third wave of social democracy where the parties start to adapt, particularly after the fall of the Berlin Wall, what then became known as Third Way or Neue Mitter. And there these parties said, OK, we need to, to reach out beyond these two original uh, pillars of our social coalition to other types of groups in society, in the private sector, new types of sectors of the economy, particularly the creative industries and, and socio-cultural professionals and so on. And, and so these parties started to accept more liberal markets, accept globalization, accept liberal open immigration policies and so on. So that part, those parties in that period. So we're now in a sense in an interregnum where we've, we've had these three waves. Social democratic parties all across Europe are are really in the doldrums in most countries. Um, And the debate now is what's the next wave of social democracy? What does it look like? What's the social coalition behind it? Is it possible to rebuild a new electoral coalition to then regain and become again a really powerful electoral force like social democratic parties were for much of the post-war period after the Second World War?
0: I think that this is a a great cliffhanger, so to say, because we've gone, as you said, through transformation, through reform, uh, through the proposals of moderating uh, capitalism. But as you also point out uh, in your study, the period between 2000 and 2017 is a period where social democrats have noted probably the worst uh, electoral results ever in the history. Um, And to to that end, uh, um, uh, there have been many questions about not only uh, Kvavadi's social democracy, but also a social democracy uh, to survive. Now, with the subsequent crises, especially in the context of the EU, and yesterday there was a big discussion about the recovery from, uh, from the COVID and the new plan was adopted, of course, much of the question of the public uh, services and public servants uh, is being uh, discussed uh, in that context. And in the context of your studies, I'd like you perhaps to explore a bit more on this connection that in your study seems to be the most innovative approach uh, to way of seeing uh, how Social Democrats uh, could see themselves in the eyes of the voters.
1: Yeah. So what we found for is for particularly that post-war, post-Second World War period in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, um one of the major factors that correlated with the electoral performance of social democratic parties was the size of the public sector i.e the percentage of the economy percentage of GDP in the public sector um and so when there was an expansion of the public sector votes for social democrats went up when there was a contraction of the public sector votes for social democrats went down now there's two possible interpretations that go in parallel uh, about why this might be. One is a more sort of instrumental interpretation, which is that public sector workers vote for social democratic parties to protect their jobs. They vote for social democratic parties uh, because these parties are going to expand the public sector and create more jobs like them. Another interpretation, which is a bit more, more uh, generous perhaps would be to say that what the public sector is doing is actually providing a safety net. It's, it, it's providing... Uh, not only employment, but also protection and opportunities, universal healthcare, universal education, universal pensions, and so on. So it's providing a safety net for people who are not necessarily gaining the benefits from a liberal open market economy. So what we do is we find evidence of both of those types of narratives. So one of it is about the actual people employed in the public sector. The other narrative is the public sector provides a safety net and, and social democratic parties are rewarded by society as a whole by providing that, that safety net. Part of the problem, of course, is is so, you know, there's globalization, which, which actually reduces uh, employment in the industrial economy, Um, A lot of the decline in employment in the industrial economy, by the way, is not just as a result of globalization, it's also as a result of technological change. So research and economics shows at least a a third to a half of the loss of jobs in in Europe as a result in industries is is to do with technological change. Um, The other thing that happens, of course, particularly post the financial crisis, is huge constraints on the public sector and a radical reform and transformation of the public sector. Um, So... And you get, you get also get a, a huge explosion of pluralism in the types of jobs in the public sector. It's not that you know all of the industrial or public sector workers in transport, in healthcare, in education, um, they're all the same. There's an enormous variation in the type of employment in the public sector, and so it's not that all these workers, all the, these employees, can be seen as just classic voters for social democrats. We also have growing pluralism in the private sector, particularly amongst lower income voters. You can't really think about a sort of lumpen proletariat of working class anymore. A lot of the lower skilled, lower income jobs in our modern economy are in the services sector, lots of different types of jobs, whether it's cleaners, security guards, uh, busboys, clerical workers, uh, people in, in retail uh, and so on and so on and so on. So, you know, enormous pluralism amongst that group of society. So it's much harder to to say, OK, we're going to create a new social movement that's a progressive social movement and we're going to capture the working class. Well, what is the working class? The working class today is not like the working class in that period between the First and Second World War, where the working class was overwhelmingly industrial workers organized into trade unions, aligned very clearly with social democratic parties. I just don't believe it's possible to really mobilize and align such a large social movement in the way that it was possible back then.
0: But uh, also your research, uh, because uh, where you make the argument about uh, the, uh, the, the the assumptions made by uh, Social Democrats strategically. Within your research, you point the necessity to look at the context and the context that is being changed. And um, one of the arguments that you have been using, if I may quote you, and I hope I'm not misquoting you, uh, is the fact that uh, people did not go in uh, sort of in packs from one party to the other, but nevertheless, the context has to be taken into consideration. So how do you see this evolving context when it comes to also the other parties uh, surrounding the center left, especially in this period of difficulty and uh, how uh, does it correlate with uh, what social democrats have or haven't done when it comes to their gov- governing responsibilities in the last years?
1: Well, I think what's happened as a result of this growing social and economic pluralism is we've seen a growing pluralism in parties and as well. So many, many more parties today Um, all the way from, you know, radical left through to radical right in every possible dimension, regional parties, green parties, social liberal parties, traditional social democratic parties, and so on and so on. In this space, I just don't see it possible that one particular party on the centre-left is going to be able to build a majority or close to a majority type electoral coalition. So because uh, the pluralism in the, the political system is just a reflection of that pluralism within society. So I think what what is much more likely or feasible would be that social democratic parties need to think strategically about building a progressive coalition of a group of parties or a group of like-minded parties That fit under some sort of umbrella that allow them to appeal across a range of different groups. So green parties, perhaps appealing more to urban young professionals, social democratic parties often appealing to more traditional social democratic voters and and trying to build new connections with the working class uh, and so on and so on. And maybe perhaps even social liberal parties who appeal to the more, progressive elements of, of the private sector, middle class, who, who are actually in, in favor of redistribution of wealth. And ultimately, this is about thinking about what is that new redistributive coalition. So if we think about a progressive coalition co- covers a range of different issues, I actually think the key question is, what is that new redistributive coalition? And that redistributive coalition, I think, is going to have to appeal to a very broad range of groups. And I just don't see it possible that social democratic parties are going to be able to do that themselves.
0: Well, this is uh, quite provocative and I would like to pursue this uh, uh, avenue for just a second because Critical uh, provocation is, of course, something that we at first value a lot. Uh, well, ask uh, before in one of your interviews, uh, what do you consider to be the modern social democratic parties? And at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about uh, periodization of the history of social democracy. Um, you spoke of uh, Scottish Nationalist Party um, as the modern social democratic party, as an illustration of what the modern party should be. And um, having already mentioned, you know, the, the the big phenomenon, globalization, and now there's uh, much of a talk about the crisis of globalization. There is the variable connected with COVID. If you were uh, from the position of the, uh, you know, many years of research, both on the national but also European level, connected to the Party of European Socialists, if you were to give an advice, and I know I'm asking for a lot just now, but if you were to give an advice, what sort of social democracy uh, should emerge post? Covered, uh, on the horizon, uh, in order to succeed in the in the next uh, months and years to come, what would you consider the defining criteria?
1: That's a huge question you've just asked me there. I mean, it depends how long you've got. I mean, it's probably way too long for. Well, a this part. is
0: our grand finale, so I, I <laughs> allowed myself uh, to deliver
1: I mean, what I think is, social democratic parties need to think about what are the key groups in society that they want to be part of the broad social coalition that they want to build. And what types of policies do these groups in society really need and really care about? And it's about thinking about what package and trade-offs need to be made across those policy domains to be able to build and hold together that, that, that social coalition. It's been interesting watching the development in the UK, for example, of the British Labour Party, and, and why the perception, in a sense, is that the Corbyn Project failed. I think the Corbyn Project failed because, although a certain element of it is really very appealed very strongly to to lower income groups in society and to younger people where there's been an intergenerational redistribution of wealth where younger people today are facing much more debt and and housing costs and and competitive labor markets and so on that previous generations didn't um so i, I can you know there was an element of this that appealed to some lower income groups in society but also younger voters But it turned off a lot of the voters that you need to keep on board. You need people who are who are relatively wealthy and successful in society but have progressive values, are willing to pay higher taxes, are willing to support and have solidarity with people from lower income groups in society, but they also need to feel that some of the things that they care about and they're interested in are recognised, and and they need to feel that they trust the leadership to look after those interests as well. So, So I think you need to think carefully about what is that coalition that you're going to put together, and that's why, although, you know, We look back at perhaps the 1990s and people like Schroeder and Blair and, and the Italian socialists in that period and say, look, this was a sort of blip and nobody wants to be like these guys anymore. What was clever about what they did was they thought very carefully about the policy packages they put together that would appeal across a broad social coalition that they tried to build. And I think returning to that Strategy rather than ne- not necessarily those policies, but to returning to that strategy is what social democratic parties need to be doing.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, Professor Simon Hicks, Vice President of London School of Economics, has been our guest at the FEPS talk. And thanks to him, we ran within just 15 minutes through the 100 years of the history of <laughs> social democracy within three periods and a massive cliffhanger at the end, whereby I would like to invite all the members of the audience to not to hesitate to comment and provide us with your ideas, how you see it and perhaps you agree, perhaps you disagree either way, thank you so much Professor Hicks uh, for being with us uh, this afternoon um, and we hope that this conversation about what's next after these three phases is going to continue and we as FAPS will be able to enable the next chapters to open, thank you so much uh, and uh, thank you, have a good day
1: Thank you very much indeed. It's been a great pleasure.
0: Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FETSTOOLS. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.